Hi, welcome to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie, and we're back with what used to be a regular two-week thing, but then sickness and thousand-page books intervened, and so hopefully, we're behind. <laughs> hopefully we're back on track, and we'll be every two weeks again from here on out. Well, some of us aren't reading very many books either, and I'm not going to name anybody, but well, some of not us, me. <laughs> some of us finished the thousand-page book we're going to talk about tonight, and some of us did not. That's true. Some of us are talking about a book that they're roughly like 45% of the way through. but <laughs> Even though you had an extra week, so. No, it's a long book. It is literally a thousand-page book, but All anyway. Right, I'm going to go first, and then, um, because I only read two other things besides that book over the past three weeks, because work has just been picking up. Um, but these are the two that I read. The first one is called Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Love Taylor Jenkins Reid. Daisy Jones and the Six is one of my favorites. I thought Malibu Rising was really fun. And this was a good book too. It was not one of my favorites like Daisy Jones was. Um, one of the criticisms I've heard of Carrie Jones, Carrie Jones, Carrie Soto, <laughs> is that um, she's an unlikable character. She's supposed to be an unlikable character, but it's also kind of hard to stick with a book all the way through when it is an unlikable character that you're looking at. I honestly didn't think she was truly unlikable. It seemed pretty clear um, the factors in her life that made her how she was. Um, I thought that the story, I love the way that Taylor Jenkins Reid picks some kind of theme like Daisy Jones was rock music. Mm -hmm. um, this one is tennis. Carrie Soto is a tennis player. And I thought it was really fun learning something about tennis since I know nothing. Um, and I always, always love her writing. It's just really good writing. I also had a lot of fun with the little pieces that she dropped in here. Like there was um, a character from Malibu Rising in here. And I feel like maybe she picked up music by Daisy Jones, possibly. And so there were just... Some neat little connections between her other books. Those are always fun if you know to look for them. I would recommend the book. I thought it was a good book. It just wasn't one of my favorites of hers. And Daisy Jones was so just transcendently good. And it's funny you talk about the unlikable uh, characters. And there was plenty of that in Daisy Jones, but I never struggled to like them. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Okay, and then the only other one that I read beside our, besides our shared read is called The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana. I picked this up just because it was about witches, and I feel like it's fall. I feel like it should be fall, even if it was almost 90 degrees today, and I just wanted to read something fallish. I've also made Chex Mix tonight. I'm doing what I can to get myself in the spirit here. Um, this was just a really warm, sweet, fun book to read all the way through. The main character um, has been raised by another witch. The premise in this book is that um, if a witch has children, then that child will be an orphan. Um, I don't, it was never really explained why, but she was an orphan. Um, she was taken in by Primrose and raised by Primrose's very strict rules, which in, um, mostly stipulate a life of loneliness, that witches cannot be around other witches because if they are, it's too much force, it's too much mag ma uh, magic all in one place. So Primrose kind of visited from time to time. She was basically raised by a revolving series of nannies and tutors and had this really very lonely life. Um, to reach some kind of connection and to have some kind of fun with her magic, she started posting videos online of herself witchy videos doing things that um maybe maybe had some real magic in them but they looked fake like she was setting herself up like a fake witch online 
and she caught the attention of a household in another part of England who sent her a message that said, which wanted, and that message changed the rest of her life. It's a really very sweet story. Um, again, different from what I expected maybe, but I really did like it. That's, that's different, yeah. I'm done. No, I am not. Uh, got a couple to talk about. One should have come up last week, but again, my addled brain failed to remember it, which is funny because it was actually the book that I read almost entirely while I was sick with COVID. For some reason, I could retain this one pretty well. It's called Basketball, A Love Story. It's credited to Jackie McMullen, but there were a couple people behind it. Basketball, A Love Story was actually a TV movie, a documentary that ESPN did. And at some point in talking to all these basketball people about their basketball stories, they realized these stories were so good, they should put them in a book. And so they did. Hmm. Um, the, the place where I really enjoyed this book, which is an oral history, uh, was a couple of things. One was getting people's origin story, getting guys talking about being a little kid and falling in love with the game. And the other was on things that have been kind of peripheral in my basketball education. There was a lot of talk about the women's game, both at the college level and then in the WNBA. There's a lot of talk about um, non-American basketball and how that's become a thing and how it's really prospered. Uh, I know I was talking with our son about Arvidas Sabonis, which is before his time, and I actually read him a couple of the pages of the book. And I think if he ever gets through it, I think he'll really enjoy the book too because just a really neat oral history of the game of basketball and the people and personalities and craziness that's gone around it. So uh, I really enjoyed that. I need to watch the movie actually, do it backward as it were. Awesome. His Greatest Speeches, How Lincoln Moved the Nation by Diana Schaub. This was a short book, but it was super technical. It looked at three Lincoln speeches Gettysburg Address, second inaugural, and I'm blanking on the first one. It's it's a less famous speech from Lincoln's early days. And Schaub literally goes through and spends a lot of time talking about why Lincoln wrote the way he did, why he he uses this word instead of that word. I mean, it's a very technical book, but in doing so, she really gets uh, at the guts of what made Lincoln so compelling in his time and what makes him compelling still, why he's relevant in 2022 and why he'll be relevant as long as there's politics and there's America and all that stuff. So I enjoyed it. If you're not prepared to get pretty technical about this, it may not be as riveting, but so it's also like 160 pages. It's not really for a Lincoln beginner. You know, it, it isn't, it isn't. Um, she prints the text of the three speeches at the end, and she says, actually, before you read the chapters, read the speeches a time or two. And in the case of the Gettysburg Address, it's so short, we, we all probably could recite chunks of it from memory. And the second inaugural is not much longer. It's a couple pages. So I still, it wouldn't be a starting place, but if you're interested in this kind of thing, go for it and... If not, get to know Lincoln a little more, and then maybe dive in. Team Arrivals, Doris Kern's good one, standard recommendation. Okay. Uh, read one called, or listened to one called, Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminiti and the Steroids Confession that Changed Baseball Forever by Dan Good. Uh, Caminiti's story was somewhat new to me. I remembered him as a player. 
he was kind of an above average player. He had one season, coincidentally, after he started using steroids, where he was the National League MVP. Uh, Good contextualizes Caminiti's choice to use steroids, his decision making with that. Uh, Caminiti also had other drug problems, and he had a heart attack uh, when he was in his 40s and died. Uh, So. It's a sad story. It's an interesting story. It tries to contextualize the whole baseball steroids thing. Um, if if you're big on that time, and particularly on Ken Caminiti, it might be worth your while. Um, I don't know that it's entirely fair or balanced. It's pretty pro, I don't want to say pro steroids. It doesn't really have a lot of problems with Caminiti, and I kind of still do. And Fair enough. You know, a, a good guy, gone too soon, had some problems. But if you want to dig deeper, there it is. Um, probably my favorite of these in the non-Robert Galbraith category, Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President by Candace Millard. Um, this is about James Garfield. This was my James Garfield book. Okay. And rather than do a straight-ahead Garfield biography, I chose this. Millard chronicles Garfield's shooting and subsequent death, which Garfield is shot, the bullet gets stuck inside of him, and he doesn't die. He lives for several months. In fact, part of what makes this story interesting is if Garfield's doctors had listened to, say, Dr. Joseph Lister, who was going around and talking about antisepsis, Garfield probably would have been fine. He didn't die from getting shot. He died from too many doctors sticking fingers and probes into an open wound and giving him bacterial infections that ultimately killed him. Make me want to be sick. That sounds so gross. So Garfield, that medical story, Charles Gateau, the guy who shot Garfield, who was this bizarre character who'd been in these like free love communes. I mean, a real out of the box kind of guy, as you would suspect. And then Alexander Graham Bell gets part of the story because Bell came up with a very primitive metal detector to try to help find this bullet, and he failed in it. And I think that was something that really haunted him, although ultimately I'm not sure how much he failed and how much he was just dealing with people who weren't prepared to be very helpful. One time he went and they thought they'd found the bullet, and they realized they were doing all this while Garfield was laying on a bed with metal springs. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was that kind of, of, you know, nobody understood you know, he, he's the guy who kind of gets the science and nobody else understands it. So there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff. But uh, All the Strands Weave Together, a very well-written book. If you're not a big historical person but just want an interesting story of a bizarre time in our country uh, and some of the, the things that were coming and going, uh, I would highly recommend Destiny of the Republic, one of my favorites of the presidential books I've done. Doing something similar with the Arthur book next, it's going to be another kind of outside the box because these guys weren't, frankly, the most fascinating people in the world. (laughs) Good Um, choice. And then uh, the last one I have to talk about before we hit the shared book was an oldie that I read as a kid, and I resurrected on a clear day they could see seventh place, Baseball's Worst Teams by George Robinson. Um. You know, it pretty much is what it says. He picks about a dozen of the worst major league teams ever and kind of tells the story. Where does this come from? How does a team get to be so bad? And there are lots of answers. Maybe you're uh, poaching all your good players and sending them to another team you own, which sounds like a terrible idea and is. 
Maybe you're cheap and can't afford good players. Maybe you're investing in a bunch of untried rookies. You know, there are a million ways to be awful, and the book documents all of them pretty well. Uh, I absolutely loved it when I was 10 or 11 at this point. You know, it's fine. It's the most recent team in the book was in 1988, so somebody might have tried to tackle baseball mediocrity uh, in more depth than this lately. But anyway, it was an oldie, and it was good to see it again. I'm glad you are finding some of these that you loved. It is fun. I'm, I'm reading one with Ryan now that uh, I read when I was about his age, and I know I'm getting somewhere when I, I read, you know, a section of it to him. And tonight he said, do we have to stop there? Can we hear some more? <laughs> yes, it's time to go to bed. We didn't stop. We did some more. <laughs> I mean, the 1984 NCAA tournament. Now, that's big-time stuff right there. <laughs> oh, anyway, I love you guys. Anyway. All right, so now we're on to the shared read, yes? Yes, yes. All right. The shared read um, is The Ink Black Heart by Robert Galbraith, which is the latest Cormoran Strike novel written by J.K. Rowling, a.k.a. Robert Galbraith. Mm-hmm. And I was deeply tempted to declaim one of the trademark sayings of the novel, which always freaks you out when I say it, but <laughs> no spoiler, so I won't. Okay, so this one was different than the other detective stories because this one deals with cyber security, like cyber threats. Mm-hmm. And I found it really, really interesting, just in light of things that are going on in the world today. Well, and things that have gone on with Rowling herself, who has made some comments that have gotten her on the wrong end of a lot of people on social media in recent years. And you have to feel like real life certainly influenced uh, this book in terms of, of you know, subject matter and, and the Potentially. Lens. Yeah, there, I mean, it's not like this is lot, her story. There but. were a lot of things that felt very familiar in this story. For instance, the um, woman who writes The Ink Black Heart, which is the comic at the heart of this book, uh, it's an artist and her partner in this um, art that they have both created who are at the heart of everything and all of the crime and the craziness has spiraled from there. Um, the other part of the center of the story is the fandom around this art mm-hmm. and just the way that when fans read a book it um, or, or participate in a piece of art, it no longer totally belongs to the artist anymore. They are free to interpret it how they want to, and they often do. They, they feel like they have a stake in this, and as avid readers, we can kind of understand that, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Um, we have not appreciated sometimes when authors of books that we have loved have come back and made comments about the story that were contrary to the understanding we had of it. Yeah. Um, but the fans in this book truly feel like they own this. Fans have made a game that uh, is related to the comic uh, that uses some of the same characters. And um, the fandom here was what was really the most interesting and what they essentially study with the cybersecurity issues here, the cyber threats. There were, there were moments of this where the, the book was at its less threatening and I thought of some of the darker things I've seen in the, in the Bob Dylan fan world because you do get that same kind of culture of ownership. How dare he say that this song on an album in 1964 wasn't about this? Well, I know it was. And, you know, yeah, it, it. you definitely could get an idea of what has trod on J.K. Rowling's <laughs> toes in recent years. Well, I found it interesting because I have only ever been on the edges of these big fandoms. I have never participated in any of them, but I've known a lot of people who have um, 
uh, who are so deeply into this that they make merchandise, they do all kinds oh, of yeah. things. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's so cool to have a piece of art that you are so into that you involve yourself with it in this way. I mean, I'll buy a t-shirt, but <laughs> I've never, I've just never been involved with this. And so looking at this whole world, now granted you're looking at this whole world from the perspective of, you know, somebody's committed a crime here and who did it. But still, just a peek into that was very cool. Yeah, it, it is... A mixed blessing. I mean, there there obviously is some benefit to having people care that much about mm -hmm. something you create, and at the same time, there's Obvious also a downsides. cost. Yeah, yeah, sure, you bet. Yeah, and you again have seen some of those in the Dylan world. So. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Absolutely. Oh, well, the things that we love about the Robert Galbraith novels—they're very different from the Harry Potter ones that we loved, and different from the Casual Vacancy, which we also loved. Um, but Rowling is always very uh, consistent in her ability to create a world, um, to create characters, and then to hold on to those through even a very long series. All of these Galbraith books, all the Cormoran Strike novels have been in the thousand page range, right? I think they've gotten thicker. I, I think mean, they, they have weren't too, but short, they've been, but they've they've been in this range. Thicker. They're all long. And I read, you know, the first chapter, and I remember I turned around to you, and I was like, oh, it's back. Because she's so consistent in the writing of these things that you feel like you're back at home. Like, you feel like you know this place and these characters so very well. well. And she's a master of character, and she's a master of plot. She could teach classes on either and, and school everybody. Um, yeah, I... All of that, you know, one the comment I made to you at one point was that it was kind of like having a TV show that you love and there's a new season of it out, you know? Yeah, and we obviously have different approaches to that because you said that's why you are reading it so slowly to stretch it out and make it last. And I said, that's why I devoured it in five <laughs> days because I couldn't read anything but this while I was reading that book. The nonfiction I was reading, it fell off. I was just consumed by this. You're probably mad she only wrote a thousand pages. Well, I mean, you know, it's going to be two more years before you get anything else. You know, and I hadn't even thought about it until I heard that this was coming. I was like, wow, yeah, I guess we are due for another one. How, <laughs> how pleasant, you know. Well, and, and I would say this, this felt like one of the more accessible ones. Some of these have been fairly dark. Some of these are not something I would necessarily recommend to just anybody. But I think that those were more toward the beginning of the series. The second and the third ones, it feels like, were particularly particularly gory and grisly. Mm -hmm. But then they have gotten less gory and more cerebral Yeah, as yeah. they've gone along, which makes them easier to read and honestly more enjoyable to read. That second one, I knew something was coming and it just, I read the whole thing with dread and then I was so grossed out when we got to it. Oh yeah, yeah. So it made me honestly a little bit afraid to read the next one, but because they have gotten less on the gore, it has increased my enjoyment. So if you uh, enjoy this sort of thing, obviously I'm not finished, but I would highly well, recommend it off of reading enough of it to know that this is pretty darn good. You always compare them to your like Raymond Chandler stuff that we read and talked about several weeks ago, that yeah. whole hard-boiled detective kind of there story. There are elements of that, yeah. Set, though, in modern times with characters that are just really, really compelling. Yeah, whereas Chandler tends more toward flat characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just kind of like here's a stock villain, here's a stock <laughs> Girl who's there's pretending no, to be this, but she's really that. There's nothing know. stock in these no, books. No, there really isn't. It's just, it's a lot of fun. 
whatever you feel about J.K. Rowling. Um, if you do like detective stories, this is a good one. Yeah, and if you want to start at the beginning, I don't remember the name of the first one. I think I would is. start at the beginning, honestly, because yeah. while each of these books stands alone, each book does kind of count on your understanding of the arc of these characters. And you really do, yeah. you know, kind of get to know them. There are a lot of details about the main characters that you wouldn't know if you hadn't read the other books. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to, of course, but uh, I think it might be a pleasant thing to do if you were inclined to do it. The first one was The Cuckoo's Calling. Yeah. That's the beginning yeah. book in the series. Um, all right. Next time... If you come back with us, we will be reading Celebrities for Jesus by Caitlin Beatty. Is that yes, right? Yes, that is correct. Um, and this is a nonfiction book that looks at the rise in celebrity in Christian subculture and the harm that this author feels that it is doing for the church. You've read more of it than I have. Mm -hmm. You're listening to it. Mm -hmm. I have barely started, but I definitely see her point. I'm interested to see where she takes it. It's kind of a broad point. I mean, there, there's some some like co-opting of mainstream celebrity and trying to make you know pastors celebrities yeah there, there's a lot of different things she has to talk about and and i've been uh i've been intrigued with it so far kind of it's like holding the celebrity topic and kind of turning it over and thinking about facets of it that maybe i hadn't as much but so we'll be back in two weeks to talk to you about that um if you would like to get in touch with us before then let us know what you think that we ought to be reading. You can get in touch with us at paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com, on Instagram at paperbackreaderspod, or on Twitter at paperbackreaderspod. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. That's it. Well, thanks for tuning in. We promise we'll do better at being more consistent. And meanwhile, whatever else is going on in your crazy lives, I hope there's a lot of reading. Take care. Mm -hmm.